0: And I uh, hope that we don't get precluded by weather factors to keep people away. This is just the more I get into what what I'm trying to cover the next probably the next month, the more important it is and vital it is as we develop this whole subject of love. So before we get started, let's uh, make sure we're in fellowship. First 1 John 1:9, 1, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all. Unrighteousness. So let's bow our heads together for a few moments of confession and then we'll be ready to go. Father, we do thank you so much for the tremendous privilege that we have and the freedom that we have to gather together as believers to look into your word. And Father, as we dig into the depths of your word to discover all that you have for us and the phenomenal assets you have provided for us as believers to face any and all problems and difficulties in life, and to solve these problems through your resources. We are uh, indeed awed by all that you have done for us. Now, Father, as we study your Word, we pray that you would help us to understand these dynamics so that we can put them into practice in our life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, this afternoon, as I sat at my desk to think about subject tonight and try to figure out how to communicate to you the importance of uh, personal love for God. I had a lot going on in my mind. It seems like the last few weeks as I've been trying to get into this subject, I've been distracted with the, all the cares and trials of moving and everything else. And for the first time, I really had some time to think about this. This subject is so vital to understand what it means for us to love God. Unfortunately, today so many believers don't have a clue as to what it means to love God. Oh, they talk about it all the time, and they sing these songs like, "Oh, how I love Jesus," and that uh, one chorus which I just despise: "Father, how Father, I adore Thee," and uh, other songs. One that just ridiculous starts off: "Love, love, love, love." All this talk about love. And very few people have the first clue as to what love is in the human realm. And that's exemplified just by the high rate of divorce and marriage failure today. Most people don't even have a clue as to what love is. And then when it comes to going a step beyond that to understanding what it means to love God, to make God the object of our love, people are even more clueless. Unfortunately, they get together at these so-called worship services where they sing all these songs about how they love Jesus and they go home with a warm glow and they feel good about themselves and they feel wonderful about God. Unfortunately, God's probably bilious over the whole thing. You cannot love someone you can't, you don't know. Love is based on knowledge. Love that is nothing more than pure emotion is ridiculous. It's not love. It's just feeling. It's just warm fuzzies. It won't go anywhere. One of the difficulties, and one of the reasons people have difficulty in understanding the whole concept of loving God, beyond the fact that they don't know God and they don't take the time to ever get into the Scriptures, to ever delve into the Word of God to find out who God is and what He has said, it's difficult to love God because God is a spirit. We can't feel Him. We can't touch Him. We can't put our hands around Him. There's an abstraction there that is very difficult for us to get past because the only way that we can know God is through understanding the Scriptures. Another reason, and a, a more fundamental reason that I alluded to already, is that people just don't understand love. They identify too often with just a superficial, sentimental emotion, sort of a warm fuzzy, and we need to get past that. Now, when we come to the scriptures and we face the scriptures, there's two commands that we've referred to already that we must deal with. One is the command in Matthew 22:37. Matthew 22.37 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is a subjunctive used in the imperatival sense. It is a, a mandate. It is a command. It is an order to every single believer. I think to get this across to you, the best way to paraphrase this is, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It's not an option. If you're going to get beyond the, the infant stages of the spiritual life, which focus on the infant or basic skills of spirituality, confession, filling of the Holy Spirit, faith rest drill grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. These are basic spiritual skills that we've talked about over and over again and that we have to master and that we have to get under control to go forward. But these all are in the realm of spiritual infancy. They don't get us into the realm of spiritual adolescence and spiritual adulthood. And the trouble today is many, many believers just dabble with faith rest drill and they understand a little about uh, grace orientation, and maybe they understand a few doctrines, and they think they've arrived. Their vision for spiritual growth is, is not much more than just being a functional kindergartner. And they think that's adulthood. They have no concept what it means to go beyond this, to go into the realm of a personal sense of, of eternal destiny, and then into personal love for God, impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. And all three of these areas are built upon understanding a concept of love that is based on virtue and integrity, knowledge and thought. And we've got to get there if you're going to ever advance to spiritual adulthood. Now when we look at this verse... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. There's one idea that stands out in that mandate. And that is the idea of devotion. Of what I will call enduring devotion, on the one hand. Enduring devotion is a vital aspect of love. If you love something, if you love someone, then you are devoted to them. If they are the object of your love, then you are devoted to them. There's a second command, and this is, this is exemplified, before we go on to the second aspect, this is exemplified in God's love in two critical verses, John 3.16 and Romans 5.8. John 3.16 says, For God loved the world so much that He gave His uniquely born Son... So that whosoever believes on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There is an incredible degree of devotion there to mankind in order to accomplish the goal of salvation that the Father planned. From eternity past, He is devoted to that. He has worked throughout all of human history to bring human history to that goal of the Incarnation. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners and that shows us that it is an unconditional love it is not based upon our works it is not based on based on any concepts of inherent goodness or value but while we are in rebellion hostility viewed as sinners while we were yet sinners Christ died as a substitute for us so this is the idea of devotion overcoming all obstacles and enduring in incredible amounts of pain as Jesus Christ, the God-man, hung there on Calvary, on the cross at, Gal- at Golgotha. I'm not talking about the physical pain of crucifixion, which is just un- just incredible, unimaginable for us. The pain that a person goes through as they're nailed to a cross and hung there, so that they slowly begin to suffocate as their body hangs down and they're... Their, their lower intestines are pushed up into their diaphragm so they can't breathe and then they have to pull themselves up uh, so that they can breathe uh, over and over again and it's, it's a long, slow, painful, miserable death usually it lasted anywhere from two to three days yet the Lord was only on the cross for a few hours I'm not talking about that that pain is nothing compared to the pain that the perfect Son of God Undiminished deity in perfect righteousness hung on the cross. And God the Father imputed to him all the sins of human history. And he paid the price for every single sin ever committed in human history. All the atrocities, all the mental attitude sins, all the atrocities of somebody like Hitler or Stalin or Idi Amin or, or the Ayatollah Khomeini or Saddam Hussein. All of those are sins. He paid for every single one of them. the perfect God-man. He who knew no sin, the Scripture says, became sin for us. He endured all of that pain, all that misery. He was separated from God the Father during those three hours of darkness on the cross. And during that time, He was judged for our sins. And that is in the Greek, the preposition huper, H-U-P-E-R, huper plus The genitive, indicating substitution. He died as a substitute. He who knew no sin was made sin as a substitute for us. So that is his devotion. It endures all obstacles, all pain, and is focused exclusively on the task at hand. That's the first aspect that we want to emphasize in what is involved in love. The second, which is... More difficult for us to understand because it is so abstract is the idea of fear. We are to fear the Lord. Now, what exactly does that mean? Let's go to a passage in the Old Testament, Psalm 33, 8. Psalm 33, 8. It says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. <clears throat> We're to fear Yahweh. This is the, called the sacred tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton, tetra means four. Grammaton, the letters, the four letters. These are the four letters in the divine name, the Hebrew name for God. And what the, the Jews would never pronounce the divine name out of reverence. So whenever they came to these four letters, instead of pronouncing them, so we just sort of guessed that the pronunciation was Yahweh. Whenever they pronounced them, whenever they came to that, they would pronounce instead the Hebrew word Adonai. And when you take the vowel points from Adonai and add those to, underneath Yahweh, that's what they would do in writing it. They just put the vowel points in to remind the reader that he was to say Adonai instead of reading out loud, the, the sacred name of God. You come up with, with sort of a conglomerate name which was then transliterated as Jehovah. And it's really Y-H-W-H, but because Germans did so much Hebrew scholarship, you have this uh, sort of this letter shift of Y to a J and a W to a V. And that's how you came up with the name Jehovah. It's not really the name of God because the vowels came out of the Hebrew for Adonai and the consonants came from Yahweh. So we are to fear Yahweh and this is a reminder when you see the word Yahweh this is the covenant name for God Yahweh is to remind the Jews that God has entered into a special covenant relationship with Israel making Israel a nation unique among all nations Israel is a covenant nation with God other na- I make a distinction between Israel's relationship with God as a covenant nation and all other nations who are sometimes God specifically chooses to work through in human history as client nations, because God did not enter into a personal one-on-one contract or covenant with any client nations. Only with Israel has He entered into a covenant relationship. And that emphasizes who God is in terms of His faithfulness and His steadfastness. So we are reminded of that in the name of God. So let all the earth... Fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the earth stand in awe of him. All the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Now, in English, when you're going to write poetry, you rhyme words often. Sometimes you don't rhyme words, but many people associate poetry with rhyming, and you have in your stanzas, you'll have one stanza, and then the next stanza, or maybe every other stanza, the words will rhyme. Well, Hebrew poetry does not have rhyming words. Hebrew poetry has rhyming ideas. It's called parallelism. Parallelism. And there are different kinds of parallelism, but the kind we have in this verse is called synonymous parallelism. And that sometimes you have antithetical parallelism, and that is opposites, where the second line is the opposite of the first line. Well, in this line you have synonymous parallelism, so that the second line is synonymous with the first line. Look at it. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. The second line means basically the same as the first line. In the first line you have the cal imperfect of the Hebrew verb yare, which means to fear, and it often refers to the emotion of fear. But it also has other ideas. And here it is used, it's a Cal Imperfect used as an imperative. And it has another idea besides the emotion of fear. And that is exemplified in the parallelism in the second stanza. And there we have the Cal Imperfect, uh, third masculine plural of gur. G-U-R. The first is yare, y a r and the second is Gore G-U-R and Gore has the idea of awe dread respect reverence so that helps us to understand what's going on up here when you have the command to fear the Lord it has to do with respect and reverence this too is a high form of love for someone. A respect and reverence. It's a very crucial idea in understanding understanding what it means to love the Lord. This is a respect and admiration that stirs you up and motivates you forward to live beyond yourself. To reach for those higher goals and aspirations in your spiritual life that will have an impact because of invisible heroeship, will have an impact that goes far beyond our small community. Now, this whole idea of fearing the Lord is very abstract, and it's a hard concept for a lot of people to uh, really grasp. So, I spent some time sitting back in my chair today and just sort of put my feet up to think about what it means to have this kind of respect, and admiration for somebody. I thought back on one individual that I knew in my life that had a tremendous impact. In fact, I told my wife one time that that there there were five men that had an overwhelming impact in my life. And this is one of those five men. And this man, unlike the others, is not a theologian, is not a pastor, and is not in any kind of ministry. His name is Lieutenant Colonel James Callahan. And he was the professor of military science, the head of the ROTC department, where I went to college. And I had the privilege and opportunity to serve under uh, Colonel Callahan while I was there and also to become his friend over the years since then. He is one one, one of those unique individuals that has that rare combination of leadership traits that you meet only once in a while in your life. He had that ability to challenge, inspire, motivate, stimulate, and galvanize just a bunch of 18, 19, 20-year-old young men to pursue a standard and to have a vision for what could happen in their lives that went far beyond anything they had ever known before. We were willing to do anything that he wanted, and we would have done anything to achieve the goal that was set before us. When I think about him, I realize that all the things that happened in those years, Callahan himself was no imposing man. He was he was rather slightly built. He was an armored uh, colonel. Those of you who know tankers have some idea what that means. Uh, he was uh, unimpressive physically. When I think of him, I always think of him being very quiet, sitting back, thinking, analyzing, and listening to what. The various cadets were saying, and always with that ubiquitous pipe hanging out of his mouth. I don't know if he was a believer or not. I have no idea what his spiritual standing is. But I do know that in his example of leadership, he exemplified a lot of the qualities and characteristics that I'm thinking of when I think about what the Bible talks about in terms of true love and what that involves. As he related to his students, he exemplified a level, uh, or he developed in us a level of respect and admiration that many leaders aspire to and few attain. In his example, he showed devotion to his country, to the army, and to his students. We developed a love for him and an admiration for him that was such that if called upon we often said we would charge the gates of hell with a teaspoon of ice water if he asked us to. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the privilege to serve with or work for anybody who inspired you like that, but you don't want to cross it very often. Such was the level of admiration and respect that he engendered in us and the impact that over 25 years later this last spring, in fact, it was the weekend before I left from there to come up here, We had a reunion to honor him and to establish a scholarship in his name for the ROTC cadets down there at Stephen F. Austin State University and to express our appreciation to him for all that he had meant to us. And many of the men that were there were still serving on active duty in the Army. Some were now full colonels. Most of the others were lieutenant colonels and many others had served there 20 years and retired as lieutenant colonels. And I was amazed how... Uh, with, the, with the various careers of so many of these guys who had gone far beyond uh, some of the the career of Colonel Callahan himself, how and they had served in many prestigious positions themselves, how they came back and said, you know, in all the years I served in the military, I never once served with an officer of the caliber of Callahan again. Never again did I see that example of leadership, that dedication and devotion to duty and to service, and to men that was exemplified by him. He was also just as crazy as he could be. I mean, the things he had us do were just, just went, went beyond the pale many times. But it was that kind of unique quality that developed uh, a respect in us. And so we responded to his leadership, we responded to his devotion, we responded to his sacrifice, to his willingness. To do whatever it took to accomplish the task, he was dedicated. Obviously, dedicated to pursuing the the goal that was set before him, which was to uh, develop this this uh, motley crew of young men into uh, material that would be commissioned officers and recognized as as gentlemen by the United States Congress. But and we didn't get to know him real well at first because. His personality was such that he was a very quiet, sort of withdrawn individual. But as we got to know him, as we sat in class under him, and as we heard him teach, and we realized his wisdom, his grasp of military science, military doctrine, and military history, our respect and admiration for him grew. You see the cause and effect between his devotion and dedication and our response in terms of admiration and respect. The more we grew in our respect and admiration for him, the more we realized how much we wanted to be around him. And I remember the times we would go out on weekend FTXs, and before long, after the problem was over with and we were just camped out for the night, we would gather around and listen to the stories he told and all the things, activities and events in his life, and he would relate those to the things that he was teaching us. And he was quite the raconteur, told great stories. And as our respect for him grew, our motivation intensified such that the last thing that we ever wanted to do was to foul up and disappoint Colonel Callahan. We just didn't want to do that. We, were, we didn't want to fail him. We didn't want to let him down. We didn't want to uh, disappoint him in any way. And all that was driven by our respect and admiration for Him. The response to what? That was all a response to His devotion to us. What He gave to us, we in turn wanted to give back to Him tenfold. That's the model. When the Bible says that we are to fear the Lord, what we have on the one hand is God's enduring devotion to us. But it's abstract. It's expressed in the historical terms of something Christ did 2,000 years ago on the cross. It's expressed in the Bible. The only way we come to put our, our fingerprints on what God has provided for us is to come and sit in Bible class night after night after night, every time the doors are open. We exemplify our love for God through our enduring devotion to class, to be here. You know, sometimes we forget what it is to have doctrine taught. I was I was humbled this last week. Last night I was talking to a friend of mine and down in Houston, and he told me, uh, he was saying, man, I just love getting tapes from up there, and I passed them out to everybody. And about a month ago, uh, a couple of months ago, he gave one to uh, someone he knew and that he was served with in his uh, uh, reserve unit. And a couple, he hadn't seen her for a couple of weeks, and he went a couple of weeks later and he said well did you listen to that tape he, she said well I've listened to it three or four times every day since you gave it to me how can I get some more you know some people out there are hungry for doctrine and they just and, and so she found out he told her how and she got on the web page and ordered some tapes so that's the kind of impact that we're having on people out there teaching doctrine but there's a devotion a desire to learn doctrine well, when we come to grips with what God has done in terms of His devotion for us at the cross and providing us our salvation, then our response, the more we learn doctrine, we respond in fear defined as admiration and reverence for God. And this in terms provides us with increased motivation to go forward. It is incremental. It doesn't happen all at once. You learn a little here, you learn a little there, you have a little more respect. This in turn spurs you on to more motivation. So you go back to Bible class. And you, go, you you continue the cycle. You learn, you apply, you're overwhelmed with what God does. That drives you to greater reverence. And you see how the cycle continues and the cycle builds. And this is what it means to love the Lord. It's these twin ideas of enduring devotion and respect and awe for God. Look at how the Bible emphasizes this whole aspect of fear and awe for the Lord. Psalm 22:23 says, "You who fear the Lord, praise him." So this is at the very root of the whole idea of worship. Reverence and awe is the beginning of true worship. It's not singing, it's not how you feel. It is a mental attitude of respect for God that is in turn a response for learning about everything that God has done for you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him, all you descendants of Israel. Psalm thirty-one, nineteen: How great is thy goodness, which you have stored up for those... Who fear thee. What do we learn from this verse? We learn that God has a treasure house, referred to here as His goodness. This alludes to divine blessing, what I call contingent blessings in time and in eternity. God has established these from eternity past, contingent blessings for each one of us. And it is totally dependent not on our works. But on our spiritual growth. We have to develop the capacity for these blessings, or God will not distribute them to us. The only thing that limits them is our spiritual growth. You see, just like you as a, as a wise parent, you will not give your children certain gifts, not because you don't love them or not because they have to earn them, but because you realize that when they're three, or four months old, they're just not going to appreciate that brand new Corvette. You have to wait until they're 12 or 13. And even then you don't give it to them because you know it will destroy them. You, they have to earn for it. They have to learn many things before you are going to give them those gifts. And that's exactly the way God operates. It's not a work system is God is not going to bless us beyond our capacity. Because if He does, it will destroy us and it will be meaningless. And this is tied to our developing personal love for God in terms of respect. How great is thy goodness which you have stored up. That's contingent blessings on reserve waiting for us to go to maturity. Which is stored up for those who have respect and awe of thee, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in thee before the sons of men. Psalm thirty-three, eighteen. Behold the eye of the Lord, his on his careful watching, his careful care, is on those who fear him. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. So here we see, and this is what's called emblematic emblematic parallelism. I referred earlier to the way the uh, uh, Hebrew poetry parallels ideas and repeats ideas. Here it's the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. In emblematic parallelism, the second stanza develops the thought. On those who hope for His loving kindness. So fear, i.e. respect and awe is related to hope for his loving kindness now this word loving kindness is a word that is much de- debated in the hebrew it is the word chesed and it really has to do with god's faithfulness his love and his goodness so it is god's continued faithful enduring love that's what chesed is talking about hope here has the idea of our confidence hope in the Bible never refers to some kind of uncertain wishy washy future but it refers to a confident expectation in what in the faithful enduring love of God so the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and fearing him is related to confidence and confidence is, is related to our future. This brings in problem-solving device number six, which is a personal sense of, an endu- of uh, eternal destiny, and then faithfulness and love. So we see here two of our stress-buster ideas. Personal sense of eternal destiny. We know where we're headed. We're living today in light of eternity. We're making decisions today because we know That being in Bible class, learning doctrine, growing spiritually prepares me for my eternal destiny in heaven. If I'm headed for heaven, I want to arrive there and have some capacity for where I am. And when I land there, I want to look around and go, oh, I'm in heaven. There are a lot of believers who are going to land there and go, where am I? Because they haven't learned anything. They just know it's not hot, so they're happy. And that's about as far as it's going to get for them. Personal sense of enduring dest- uh, of eternal destiny. This is problem solving device number six. And then our personal love for God is related to loving kindness. And this is our stress buster problem solving device number seven. Let's go on. Psalm 34 7. What I'm doing here is overviewing some of these passages that stress this idea. This is a continuous theme throughout the scripture. The importance of having that personal, Love for God. And let me tell you where I'm headed with this, because this is why everybody in this congregation needs to be here. Because everyone in this congregation is either married or is going to be married, probably. Or has some relationship with someone. And this whole concept of God's love for us is what undergirds everything God says about marriage, the duties and responsibilities and the leadership of the man, and the duties and responsibilities of the wife. And that's where we're headed in Ephesians chapter 5 and uh, 1 Peter and several other passages. We're going to take time out from our overall study because in the context of James, where we're studying the issue is tests and trials. It's also how to overcome temptation, which is where we're going to come in the verses we're about to get to. But one of the greatest areas of tests in life is people testing. Especially the people we live with and the people we love. Because we're two sinners living under the same roof and so we have a lot of testing that goes on there. And the only way to overcome that is through through first personal love for God and impersonal love for all mankind. And if you don't have personal love for God to motivate you through the tough times, and if you don't understand some things about impersonal love, which is described in 1 Corinthians 13 and many other passages then you will have a very difficult time making a success of a marriage. And the trouble with most marriages is most people don't have a clue as to what love is. They think it has to do with some feeling, so as soon as the feeling has gone, there goes the marriage. And so what we have to do is, is these things work together in tandem, personal love for God and impersonal love for mankind or unconditional love for man. They work together in tandem and they become the foundation for success in every single category of human relationship. And so if we're going to pass the tests that relate to people, then we have to master these two stress busters, these two spiritual skills. And if we're going to master them, then we have to begin with some understanding of what love is, and it starts with personal love for God. It has two aspects, enduring devotion, and secondly, respect. Awe, reverence, Psalm 30 four seven describes the protection, special protection that God gives to those who fear Him. Now not every believer fears Him. Romans eight twenty eight says, and we know God causes all things to work together for good. What? To those who love God, not to every believer, but to those who love God. To those who have developed this ability to have a personal love for God the Father. He works all things together for good. In terms of adversity, He is the one who is working behind the scenes to produce what? the this uh, ble- uh, Suffering for blessing to advance us in spiritual maturity. So it's directly related again to personal love for God. But there is a special protection, the angel of the Lord. Here that refers to the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament economy, the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and rescues them. He is pictured as the deliverer of the Old Testament saints. Psalm 34, Oh fear the Lord, you His saints, for to those who fear Him there is no want, there is no lack, there is no need. What is Psalm 23.1 said? The Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd, I shall not want. There is no lack. God provides everything. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. There is one thing that I hope you get out of what I'm communicating on Sunday morning that I want to start stressing more and more. We go over the whole salvation package, everything Christ did for us on the cross. Once you come to grips with the entire package, the renovation that takes place at salvation and regeneration, the cleansing, justification, imputation of righteousness, it makes us realize that we have everything we need. We don't need psychology, we don't need counseling, we don't need human viewpoint systems to get along, we don't need stress management techniques. God has given us every single thing we need for life and godliness. That's the promise in Second uh, Peter 1.3. God has given us everything. There is no need. And that's reinforced here in Psalm 34.11. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you, the, I mean, excuse me, Psalm four nine. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for to those who fear Him, there is no want, there's no lack, there's no need. Need. They're filled up. Psalm eighty-six, eleven. The psalmist says, Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Thy truth refers to the principles of Bible doctrine referred to in the Word. Jesus Christ, in His high priestly prayer, the night before He was crucified, is praying to God and He says, Father, sanctify them. Who is He talking about? He's talking about believers in the church age. You and me. We who have the unique spiritual life of all time the incredible spiritual life, and all the assets given the church-age believer. God the Son prayed to the Father, sanctify them, set them apart in truth. Instrumental case. By means of truth. How are we set apart in the spiritual life? By means of Bible doctrine. And then He said, Thy Word is truth. Now this is not everyday truth that competes on the same level with one human viewpoint system and another. This is divine viewpoint, absolute truth. The one thing you can count on over and above everything else. And so the psalmist prays, teach me thy way. You see, we have to learn doctrine in order to grow spiritually. We have to learn the principles of God's Word. We have to make that a high priority in our lives in order that we will advance. It's called dedication and devotion to the Word. One of the things that that always discourages me, I've heard this for years, it's one of my pet peeves, is all the parents I hear say, well, I'd be a Bible class on Wednesday night, but I've got, you know, little Jimmy or little Susie has ballet or little Jimmy has soccer or whatever it is. We've got to get all these wonderful things for our kids so we've got to get them to their soccer lessons and their piano lessons and little league and football and whatever it is, as if the most important thing in this kid's life to make him a a good adult is for him to go through all these extracurricular activities. And let me tell you something. If you as a parent do not set the example that the most important thing in your child's life is the spiritual realities, and that they need to make doctrine the highest thing, and that your personal love for God is exemplified by your devotion to be a Bible class in a church every time the doors are open to learn doctrine. If you're not communicating to your kid that that's the most important thing, then I don't care how much football, how much soccer, how much piano, how much ballet you give them, you are a failure as a parent. Because you need to exemplify to them that the most important thing they can do with their life is dedicated to Scripture, to doctrine, to spiritual life, to spiritual growth, to glorifying God. Because when it's all said and done, the only thing that survives is spiritual maturity. The only thing that goes beyond the grave is spiritual maturity. And if that's not communicated to your kids, it doesn't matter what else you do, you're a failure. Psalm 86, 11, teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Psalm 103, 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness. There's our word again, chesed, his faithful covenant love. So great is his faithful devotion to those who what? Who fear him, those who reverence God and awe, have awe and respect for God. Psalm 103.13 Just as a father has compassion on his children, so Yahweh has compassion on those who fear Him. And so then in Psalm 103.17 But the loving kindness, that is the faithful devotion of love of the Lord, is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. So just from a few of these passages from the Psalms, we see the importance that the Bible stresses and puts on this second aspect of love, on reverence and awe. And see, this is to be evidenced in every single believer, these two aspects. Enduring devotion on the one hand, and on the other hand, respect, Awe and admiration. This is what drives us. This is what provides the motivation to stimulate you, to push you forward in the spiritual life to spiritual maturity. Because the last thing in the world you want to do is to let God down. The last thing in the world you want to do is to disappoint the Lord. Because as you grow to a greater understanding of all that God has done for us and supplied for us and provided for us, the last thing you want to do is to let him down, and it moves you forward in your spiritual growth. So we're told that all respect, admiration is necessary for any advance in understanding God and in application of doctrine. And we see this principle in two key passages. That's Psalm 111.10 and Proverbs 1.7. And they say almost the same thing. Psalm 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom, the starting point. So you have your basics down here. But if you want to go forward in wisdom, now what is wisdom? This is so important. Wisdom comes from the Hebrew word, or it translates the Hebrew word, Chokmah. Chokmah, Chokmah. And it's a word that in its basic meaning, it, it, it means skill. Skill. It refers at the time of when, when the craftsmen were building the furniture for the tabernacle. That God filled them with the Holy Spirit to give them skillful hands. And he uses this word chokmah. Skillful hands in constructing the jewelry. All of the, the gold and silver all the, the craftsmanship in the wood. Everything necessary in order to make something beautiful and attractive. And wisdom is that which makes our lives beautiful and attractive in God's sight. It is, all, it is similar to the New Testament concept of epinosis, but I think wisdom almost goes a little beyond epinosis. Because wisdom, epinosis is that doctrine that resides in the soul But wisdom has more of a practical application to it. It is taking that epinosis and applying it and it emphasizes the results of that application, the beautiful life that is developed by your use of doctrine as you glorify God. The fear of the Lord then is the beginning. So you start off down here learning your basic spiritual skills related to confession, filling of the Holy Spirit, faith rest drill, doctrinal orientation, grace orientation... And what happens, you understand what God has, and this begins to develop the fear of the Lord. Reverence, respect, admiration for who God is and what He has done for you. And that's the beginning of wisdom. It then motivates you to the advanced level, the maturing level, the advanced stress busters, personal love for God, impersonal love for all mankind, occupation with Christ, and inner happiness. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. So again, it's related to practical application. Not just coming to Bible class, learning, filling up a notebook with all the doctrines, and going home and thinking, wow, I'm just learning so much, isn't it fun? And that's what we we all go through that. I think that's a stage of immaturity. Everybody goes through that because they're just excited about what they're learning. But it goes beyond that. It goes to taking what you're learning and applying it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. And then Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So we strive to develop this aspect of our love for God, the reverence, and respect for God, which drives us forward in motivation towards spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. So what are the characteristics then? Let's break this down. Characteristics. On the one hand, this is where we ended last week. On, on the one hand, we have devotion. On the other hand, we have respect. In many ways, this is the initiating side, and this is the response side. But both are present in every believer under the category of love. Both are present. They apply, some of these apply, all of these apply to impersonal love, but some of these apply to personal love. We take as our model what takes place on the cross. Romans 5a, but God demonstrates His love for us. What are the characteristics we see in that divine impersonal love? Well, first of all, why is it impersonal? It is impersonal because personal love emphasizes the compatibility and rapport between the object and the subject of love. When you say, I love you, many people mean that that you are compatible with me, and because we have compatibility, there is rapport. So the emphasis is on the compatibility, attractiveness of the object of love with the subject of love. So it's personal. It involves personal knowledge and a personal relationship between the person loving and the person who is loved, and it emphasizes the aspect of compatibility. Often it is conditional because as soon as that aspect of of, uh, compatibility is gone... There's no longer any kind of relationship or any kind of love. Many times this is expressed selfishly. Because as long as you make me feel good, then I will care about you and take care of you. But, and as long as you're beautiful, as long as you're attractive, as long as there's no difficulties in the relationship, I'll be here, but as soon as things get rough, I'm gone. Impersonal love puts all the emphasis on the virtue and integrity of the one loving. I love you. All the emphasis is on the integrity of the lover and has little if nothing to do with the object. The object may be unattractive. The object may be obnoxious or repugnant to the person doing the loving, but all of the emphasis and stability comes from the integrity and character of the one loving. This is the kind of love that God has for us. Because we're sinners, because we are minus R, we lack righteousness, We are obnoxious to God who is plus R, and plus R can have fellowship only with that which is plus R. Perfect righteousness can have compatibility in a relationship only with perfect righteousness. Because we are minus R, God cannot have personal love for us because we are not attractive to God. God loves His own righteousness, Psalm 17 says. God loves His own righteousness, so He cannot love anything less than His own righteousness. But God loves us because of who and what He is and not because of who and what He is we are so this is what I mean by impersonal love so what are the characteristics God has loved us the scripture says what are the characteristics that we find in that kind of love well first of all it is initiating and we find initiating grace in eternity past billions and billions of years ago God knew that if he created a creature called man that man would sin and rebel against him And God would have to solve the problem. And God took the initiative in grace to provide a plan that would solve the problem. So God is perfect, and He has a perfect plan to solve uh, human sin. And that was based upon, it was motivated by His impersonal love for man, perceived as a sinner. And it focused on sending His Son as a sacrifice to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. So in initiating. God's love took charge in eternity past to motivate him to provide the solution necessary to restore the relationship with mankind that would be broken by Adam's original sin. second characteristic of impersonal love on the devotion side is that it is aggressive. It is aggressive as opposed to passive. It asserts itself with confidence and boldness. It goes forward. It seeks solutions. It focuses on the divine solution and not the human problem. Because of omniscience, God knows the entire problem the human race faces, and with understanding, complete omniscient understanding, He takes every step necessary to resolve the problem. He He, he is aggressive in His love. Third, He is there is humility. Humility, true humility. Humility is the attitude of a servant. This is expressed in various passages in the New Testament, Matthew 20:28 20, and Mark 10:45. Turn with me to Matthew 20:28. 20, this is basic to all impersonal love. This is basic to all love. Husbands, pay attention. This is fundamental to your love to your wife. If you do not lack, if you do not have humility, you cannot exercise the kind of love and leadership to your wife that the Scripture demands. Humility. Humility has the idea of being a servant. Jesus said just at Matthew twenty twenty-eight, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Hold your place there and turn with me to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. I want you to see the comparison here. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. Excuse me, verse 25. Here's the mandate to husbands. Now, I no next week the men are going to be here and all the ladies are going to be here because, man, they're going to want to hear when I come down on the husband's. And then it will be reversed the next week. Husbands, it's an imperative. Let's get the force of the imperative. Husbands, you must love your wives in the same way Christ loved the church. That's what that's saying. Not an option, guys. You must love your wives in the same way Christ loved, loved the church. And what? And gave Himself up for her. How do we understand that? Go back to Matthew 20. Matthew 20. Let's look at the context. This is one of those great little stories and you just love to poke fun at, 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 at uh, James and John because the, the, the humanness comes across. Go back to verse 17. Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem. He took the disciples aside by themselves And on the way he said to them, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, just like a mom. I want to make sure my boys get everything they ought to get. I mean, they're good boys. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, came to him with her sons, These guys must have been embarrassed. How would you guys like it as adults? If your mom grabs you, you know, come on boy, come on. We're going to go see Jesus and we're going to find out which one gets the prize. Bowing down and making a request of him. And he said, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom these two boys of mine may sit on your right hand and one on the left. I'd be embarrassed down to my socks. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, We are able. What arrogance. What ignorance that they had. Because the cup that he's talking about is going to the cross. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left, this is not for me to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. Jealousy erupts among the disciples. And Jesus called them to themselves and says, Boys, we have a teachable moment now. We're going to find out what leadership is all about. Leadership is not like the Gentile see leadership, which is lording it over people and asserting their authority. And how many times when we come to these passages that deal with the relationships in a marriage, do we hear people phrase it in terms of authority and sound authority? Very autocratic in the way it is expressed. But hearing this, but but that's not what we see here. We don't see an autocratic emphasis on authority as much as we see a humble emphasis on being a servant as being fundamental to leadership. Guys, I see the difference as being not asserting your authority, but emphasizing your leadership role in the home. And Jesus goes on in verse 26, it says, It's not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you. If you want to be a great among you in any category of life, men or women, whatever your field of endeavor is. If you want to be a great leader, this is the principle, the divine viewpoint principle on leadership. Then you shall be a servant. That means those whom you seek to lead, you will seek to serve. You put their needs first, elevating them. That means you dedicate yourselves to being the best you can be in whatever it is, whatever the field of learning is that you're in. Whatever your field is, you learn it to the best of your ability so that you can help them be successful by transferring your knowledge to them. That's what it means to be a servant. Jesus said, "...whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant." and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. That demands humility, not arrogance. True humility, not this, this kind of pseudo-humility that goes around today, which is nothing more than self-flagellation and a reverse arrogance, but true humility, which seeks the best for its object. It is part of love. True humility, remember, is an aspect of grace orientation, one of the foundational stress busters. Before you can ever learn something about true love, you have to learn something about grace. Just as, And that's what's exemplified in verse 28. Just as the Son of Man. Here it is. Just think about this. Here is the Lord of the universe. Jesus made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. In Him, Colossians 1.16 and 17 says, in Him hold together everything in the universe. He is the glue that holds together all of the subatomic particles. He holds together the universe, even as an infant in the cradle. He was holding together all of creation. Here is the God, the King of kings, and Lord of lords, and it says, He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Men, that is the example for the husband in loving the wife. Now, we're going to get into that in more detail next week. We're just barely scratching the surface here. We've gone through the first three attributes of enduring devotion, initiating, aggressive, humility. We still have to deal with four more. And then we have to get into the characteristics related to respect. And from there, we'll get into how this applies to various relationships, especially in marriage and how those marriages impact the angelic conflict. So we're just starting. It may be a while before we press on in James, but we have a lot of important material to cover and nobody in this congregation ought to miss it. Let's bow our heads together in closing prayer. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to look at your word for the example that you have set for us and what true love is all about and true leadership in terms of service, in terms of devotion, in terms of dedication and consecration to the task. Father, we pray that as we study these things that they would revolutionize our thinking in terms of our relationships, especially in terms of our marriages and families, and that as we learn more about what you have done for us, that our thinking would be transformed, our motivation would be energized and we would go forward with enthusiasm in our spiritual life we pray this in the name of christ our savior amen